Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about self-harm, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome back to episode 99 of the Just Checking In podcast, just one away from my classic JSIP 100. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Ben, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me, as always, your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I've spoken to a trans man on this podcast in the form of Aaron Kimberley. I've also spoken to a UK detransitioner in the form of Sinead Watson. And in this episode, I'm checking in with a trans woman from the UK. Debbie Hayton is first and foremost a teacher, writer and commentator who writes about her perspective on the issues currently impacting the trans debate and conversation at the moment. She is a regular columnist for Unheard and writes for other outlets including The Spectator. Everything from the controversy around trans women being allowed into biological female spaces to the debate between trans kids versus children with gender dysphoria, Debbie writes on all of these issues with clarity and a much-needed rationality in one of the most toxic conversations in society right now. In this episode, we discuss Debbie's journey to becoming a transsexual woman, her life as a biological male and her former name, David, transitioning while still working as a teacher, which is an incredibly brave thing to do, and the apprehension she had during this period. We also discuss her thoughts about non-binary and other gender identities and a form of transsexualism called autogynephilia. We talk about why there's such a taboo about this term, how and why Debbie identifies as an autogynephile, and how it affects the mental health of transsexual women. Some of these terms may be new to most of you listeners, but we try and talk about these terms in as easy to understand language as possible whilst retaining accuracy and having a compassionate conversation. We also discuss the social media abuse Debbie has faced for holding views that don't conform to what some people perceive to be what trans people should, in inverted commas, think. She's also been called a transphobe in recent times, and we discuss how the impact that smartphones and social media have had on gender dysphoric teens, especially in the UK. So this is how my conversation with Debbie Hayton went. Debbie Hayton, welcome to the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you very, very much for letting me check in with you. Your voice is such a needed one in this conversation right now, and I'm hopeful that my listeners will be educated and really learn a lot from what we're going to talk about. So first off, how are you? How are you keeping? I'm very well, thank you. We've just been through a house move from Birmingham to Bristol and things are just finally settling down. It feels like home again here, so I'm doing fine. Thanks. Amazing. I feel like this pod is going to be a bit of a whirlwind, maybe a roller coaster journey, but again, you hold so many nuanced perspectives and I'm very much someone on the podcast who likes to treat life not as black and white but as you know shades of grey and nuance so without further delay shall we start the show let's start the podcast by talking about your own mental health journey Debbie because this is where 
all of the work you do now and the advocacy you do began, to be honest. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Can you take me back to your early life, maybe teenage years? And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you had looking back? And I'll use your former name if that's okay. So who's the David we meet at this point? Back in childhood, you meet a a quiet, introverted, quite gentle boy, but not remarkable in any way, really. I didn't enjoy rough and tumble play, didn't enjoy that sort of those sort of activities. I was more interested in books, science, and my telescope. I wanted to be an astronaut when I was <laughs> when, I, when I was a child. But although at the time I perhaps felt that uh, I wasn't the extroverted life and soul of the party as perhaps was expected. I don't know if it was expected. I think I was one of many, many, many normal boys growing up trying to make their way forward in Mm. life. Before you were a commentator on the trans debate or trans conversation, you were and still are a successful secondary school teacher. So let's talk about teaching a little bit if we can here. Why did teaching feel like your calling and what inspired you to go on that journey? Well, going back to the astronaut (laughs) thing, I, I was fascinated by science and wanted to be a scientist. I went to university, I did a degree in astronomy. I then did a PhD in physics. I was a research associate and then a research fellow in in academia. Mm. I could have been an academic. Mm. But two things, two things really. One was I did enjoy teaching. The way in which you could inspire other people in teaching gave me a buzz. And I did some of that as part of my work in the university. But secondly, and being really pragmatic, we needed to get a mortgage. Mm. And the contracts that were on at the time was six months here, 12 months here. Mm. And teaching provided some certainty and some confidence in the future. I didn't know where I was going at the time necessarily, but I I trained to be a teacher, became a teacher. And 26 years later, I'm still a teacher. (laughs) We're going to talk about the apprehension you had transitioning whilst as a teacher a bit later Debbie but what are some of the challenges you faced outside of transitioning but within teaching that impacted your mental health positively or negatively? It's expectations Mm. really and I think when it comes to mental health expectations are the biggest issue I've struggled with throughout life and only now as I get older I can divide them into expectations from the outside which we all know about, but it's also those expectations within, those expectations and those standards we set for ourselves to do well, to do better. And those have been the challenges for me in teaching because you can never finish the job in teaching. There is always more that can be done. And if you have high standards in your work, that can be difficult to accept. Mm. What's been your proudest achievement on this journey? Uh, Let me think. Probably things I've done at lunchtime in teaching. You get your timetable, you've got your timetable classes, but it's the things I've done at lunchtimes with children. Years ago, I used to teach GCSE astronomy. Mm. And there was a a boy in year nine. So two years before they should do it, GCSEs, he was really interested. And working with him at lunchtimes, teaching him about astronomy, him entering the uh, GCSE as year nine, two years early, and getting an air grade, oh, that, re- uh, yeah. that really Amazing. was superb. The last I heard of him, I moved on from the school. Years ago, he did a degree and a PhD in physics himself. So there's somebody there who have managed to inspire and it's making that difference in people's mm, lives. That's amazing, Debbie. It's really great to hear. I hope that kid is hopefully maybe li- even listening to this pod. So he's got a shout out if he's listening. Can we talk about your transition now? So set the scene for the listeners a little bit, if you can. When did you first start experiencing gender dysphoria? Maybe define it a little bit. And then how did that impact your mental health? 
It's knowing how you fit into society and how you expect to do that. And I think we, we start that really young. You know, two or three, we differentiate ourselves from everybody else and trying to fit in. Gender dysphoria, well, whatever gender dysphoria is, was there then. Certainly, it was nothing which appeared later on in life. So it was there from my youngest memories mm. that there was something here in how I wanted to relate to the rest of society and present to the rest of society. I knew that... You know, from being four or five years old, I knew that girls' clothes were off limits to me. And it was a really serious issue to me. And the mental stress that I went through just before a, a Christmas production, which involved some clothes which were probably marketed more at girls than boys. And the struggle, I, the mental struggles I went through that in wearing that costume, I was breaching a taboo and I knew I was breaching a taboo. And I couldn't talk to anybody about mm. it. And this is what later I've described as gender dysphoria. But it was there when I was four or five years old. And I can date that to five years old because I know which year group I was in at school when it mm. happened. You said to me off air that during this period, if you had to describe it, a mental health meltdown would be a gross understatement. So was that breakdown directly linked to or was a factor in your reason for transitioning? Because during my research, even saying something like that is seen as controversial in some circles, isn't it? Yeah, it's why struggles which... that my, my question was to myself, why were these struggles which I'd faced since age four or five but were like a chronic condition that I lived with, I managed? You know, I'm short-sighted. I live with that, I manage that. Why did that condition become so chronic? So that chronic condition become so acute, so severe when I got to uh, 42 years old, that it did, it seeded a, a mental health crisis. And it is controversial because it ties in transsexualism, if we want to use that term, with mental health. I think it is very much tied in with mental health, but we're told that it's it should be divorced from mental health because for reasons I can't mm. really, uh, I can't really explain. All I can come down to, all I can imagine is that people who say that it must be divorced feel that mental health is a taboo issue. It's something that we're ashamed of. Poor mental health is something that, uh, yes, it's shameful. And I was there at age 42 with this huge mental health meltdown. And I now know what caused it. But I didn't at the time. All I was dealing with was the symptoms of this, trying to fight the symptoms one by one by one by one. People on the internet told me that transitioning would solve the problems, so I transitioned. Mm. Do you think part of that reason, Debbie, is because in previous decades, really harmfully and wrongly, homosexuality was described as a mental illness. It was seen as something which was deranged or causing derangement in these in the kind of media conversation, young gay men predominantly, but also gay women. Do you think that people are in probably, I guess, in your perspective, wrongly making that connection to trans issues as well? So they're si so if you say my transitioning was in part because of a mental health breakdown, they might say, well, that's that's a taboo, that's a stigma, and we need to break that down and divorce it. Do you think that's a possible reason or not? Well, we look at parallels between sexuality and gender reassignment to use the you know sexual orientation and gender reassignment. There are parallels there in that you have minorities who face oppression, they face discrimination, harassment from society, you know, and it's the same sort of people who oppress both groups, if, if I'm being direct about that. So we share a lot in common there. But there are differences that as human beings, 
we all have various qualities. We're either male or female, you know, and th- those are the two biological sexes. We all have a sexual orientation. It can vary in strength and magnitude, but essentially we're uh, attracted to the opposite sex, our own sex, or both sexes. So sexual orientation is there. But there's another vector as well, as well as the sexual orientation, which is a are looking outwards, there's also how we respond to that and how we respond Mm. to everybody else. And that I've written about and explored the idea of sexual signaling. So our sexual orientation is what we're looking for in other people. Then we sexually signal how we want other people to see us. And that's where the gender comes in, because that's what transsexual people do. I understand this now. I didn't understand it 10 years ago. Mm. So that's what transsexual people do. We prefer to be seen as the other sex. We want to signal as the other sex. So we transition. Now, none of this is necessarily a mental health problem, or it shouldn't be. This is just variation in in the human condition. This is who we are. You know, we're we're varied. We're dis, we're all different, and we have our peculiarities. Although that's another word which is again seen as pejorative. Mm. You know, but we're we're all individuals. Now, all this it shouldn't be a problem, but it becomes a problem when it's not understood, and when other people don't understand us. But more importantly, I think when we don't understand ourselves, we don't understand why we're. Uh, reacting in where we are to our ourselves and others and we don't understand how to move forwards in in our lives without denying or uh, avoiding key issues mm. and that's the problem it's not that uh, transsexual is a mental health condition it just leads to them because we don't understand mm. it let's talk about the night where you decided to transition debbie because it was on the first sunday in january in 2012 so you were in church i believe in the day and evening and You were asked a question which triggered you in a really bad way. So can you walk the listeners and me through that day, what that question was and why it led you to do the things you did that night? This is the first Sunday in 2012. I was in a bad way mentally, had been. I was struggling with what we call gender dysphoria. It was tearing me apart. I was aware that transitioning was a solution. But I didn't think at the time it was something that I could do. I couldn't go through. It it was just too huge. The first Sunday evening, there was a church service. I'm a Christian. I'm a regular churchgoer. It was an informal service. And as you would do, time to talk to the people around. The question posed was, what are your hopes and fears for 2012? And at the time, what came through my mind was, I don't think I'll see 2012 out Mm. here. What I thought I needed to do in order to move forwards in life I didn't think I could do I didn't see a solution to it I wasn't prepared to discuss it with the people people around so I apologized to the person I was talking to I apologized to Emily and said I can't cope with this at the moment I'm sorry you'll have to go and find another partner I picked up my, my things and walked out straight out the front door I didn't understand what was happening to me the emotions was were emotionally and hormonally I was in a state I knew I uh, it's hard even thinking back to this Mm. Freddie actually how I was just thinking coming out of that church that night I was grappling with issues that I knew nobody could help me with because I didn't understand them myself Mm. and I didn't think I could solve them and uh, I had to do something Mm. And I still don't understand why I got there, 
But I shut my eyes and ran diagonally across a four-lane road, not all the way home, but three or four times I ran down the side of the road in a manic phase, dashed across the road with my eyes shut, dashed back and did that multiple times on the way home. Ever since then, I've been a much more careful driver, (laughs) believe me. And I didn't know why I was doing that or the purpose of it, but I knew I couldn't cope and I didn't know how to begin to cope and I didn't know where to go to find help to cope. Mm. I was in total despair. At that time as well, Debbie, you were also self-harming. And now I'm not going to ask you about the details of the method, but what did at the time the self-harm give you? Was it escapism? Was it a a way to release emotions or something to release yourself from such stigmatised thoughts and emotions? It was to connect the inside to the outside. Their self-harm, the real self-harm was going on inside. Emotionally, I was in a mess. You know, that's an understatement. It doesn't begin to describe where I was emotionally inside. The self-harm was all happening inside, but nobody could see it. Mm. By self-harming, you externalise it. You then allow it to escape from you. And what's going on in here, inside, then does have some release it's still no answer to it, but at least it could externalise what the torment, what was going on internally. Mm. You managed to get some professional help and support for your mental health. However, from speaking to your fair, it didn't quite work out the way you wanted it to. Why was that? I went to various places for support. I had a personal a counsellor, a therapist. She was excellent. She was She was very good. She gave me space. She didn't tell me to do anything it was always trying to help me find myself Mm. in that chair and she was very good I was married at the time I'm still married and at the time thinking about transition how to do this how does that tie into a heterosexual marriage when somebody that you've been married to for 17 years as sorry 19 years at the time it was by that time how do you explain to them that you're not the man you or you don't think that you're the man that they married and you now want to be a woman but you'd really like to carry on with this marriage because you know it's really hard Mm. is that and I can't speak for for Stephanie my partner in that at all but for her they say when you get married it's for better for worse but this was the worst possible for her so we went for some uh, marriage guidance counselling with the idea of trying to help us work through this as as a couple. But it was clear that the counsellor was just not prepared for this. You know, looking around the waiting room when we were waiting, you know, we didn't want to get divorced. And there was no, well, there was no physical or overt abuse going on. And what we were coming with was, how do you help us live with this? And the counsellor just had Not prepared, no yeah, clue. Yeah. It wasn't in the training manual mm. for a relate counsellor, I don't think. And I found it excruciating to be uh, to be led through things which were not helping. Do you feel you need to do this? Well, yes. And it it was just, it, it, it didn't help. And in those counselling sessions, I remember one session where I dug the nails of one hand into the back of my other hand and I drew blood from the back of my other hand. So that was going on in those counselling sessions. Again, it was externalising the uh, trauma inside. Mm. So my experience of therapy was mixed. Mm. By this point, you were quite fixated on the belief that transitioning would fix inverted commas, your mental health crisis. Now, you told me that in some ways it did, but in also some ways it didn't. Can you explain that dichotomy for me? 
Well, at the time, I thought it was some kind of woman. I thought this was the explanation for what was going on, that I had, yeah, I was textbook in my beliefs that I had a female gender identity, a bit like a gendered soul, which had been unfairly or wrongly assigned to this male body. And by transitioning, I could be on the outside, the person I was on the inside. And in some ways, it worked and it helped and it helped the gender dysphoria. Now, I just, want, I just want to stop there because we keep talking about gender dysphoria. It's an artificial term that's been invented. People have psychological disorders and people have identity disorders. And those are known. Those are catalogued. There are identity disorders related to gender, gender identity disorder, which was the original diagnosis. You'd been diagnosed with gender identity disorder. And that became gender dysphoria because nobody wants to be painted to have a disorder for you know, mm. for, because that's what that's what we do. We stigmatize disorders. Mm. But what looking back now wasn't the issue. The gender dysphoria wasn't. The, it was the gender euphoria. Mm. It was by secretly cross-dressing, by imagining myself to be a woman. It was the euphoria inside that released hormones. The the you know, the endorphins that that released were addictive. The endorphins and the adrenaline. It's addictive, is that? Mm. And the come down from that when you realize that, yeah, I am a man and this is a fantasy and I've got to get on with life. It was those come downs which were just which were just so difficult. Mm. And by transitioning, you're living the high the whole time. Mm. You don't have the come downs. In some ways it works. But like any drug, you're on a drug the whole time and you're detached from yourself and you're masking the underlying issues. So it did. It helped with the symptoms. But it didn't solve the problem because the problem is one of identity, who we really are, not who we fantasize over who we are. You mentioned drugs there. So I think this is a good time to talk about that medical pathway. Can you talk about when you started taking hormones, the reality of what those hormones are like and how it affects a biological male body? When did you start presenting as a woman and when did you go from David to Debbie? Right. It's a process and it doesn't all happen at once. I was an NHS patient the whole way through. I was a patient of an NHS gender clinic. But they put you through it. I turned up for the first appointment at the gender clinic in May 2012. So it was five months after the zigzagging across the road. I was still David at the time. I was working in male role. I turned up to the gender clinic in my suit. I'd gone straight from work, so I suit and tie and everything. And they were brutal. They said, you know, there's not much we can do for you. You know, what do you expect us to do for you? Go away, transition, change your name, change your documents, change the way you dress, change the way you present, come back, and we might be able to do something. That was what I faced. I walked out the clinic thinking, this needs to be done. So I changed my name on the, uh, got it here actually, <laughs> changed my name on the 26th of October 2012. That was what I did first actually. So I was a teacher, it was half term. I did it at the Magistrates Court in Birmingham. You can change your name in any number of ways, but I wanted to have official paperwork. My wife is Canadian and Different jurisdictions sometimes need different proofs. So if we were ever going to live in Canada, I wanted to do it properly. So that was when I changed my name. I was still presenting at work as David and in male role. I transitioned supposedly at home in social settings at the beginning of December. But it was then it was beginning to dawn on me, what is all this about? Because what does it mean to transition? Does it mean to wear different clothes? 
does it mean to use different pronouns? Because I was still exactly the same person. Nothing seemed to have changed. Did it give me license to wear dresses when I wanted to rather than, uh, you know, it's unclear. I then transitioned at work over that Christmas holiday. That was the idea. So it was it was the beginning of January 2013. I went uh, full time to use the, uh, the expression. Now, that did matter because you're then being referred in another name in your professional setting. And that did have an impact. And as teachers, we do present clearly in different ways, male and female teachers. We may do the same job, but we uh, we present differently. Women don't need to wear a tie, <laughs> so I didn't need to wear a tie anymore. And this was different to at home, where I wore jeans and a t-shirt in male role, and I wore pretty much the same jeans and t-shirt in female role. It didn't change. So work did, but I still hadn't got, at that point there, I went through all that and hadn't had a sniff of any hormones. Mm. It wasn't until March of that year, so I, I, I taught in female role for a full term without any hormones went back to the gender clinic that was what they wanted to see mm. they said okay if you'll if you'll do that we'll support mm. this then they wrote to my gp the gender clinic didn't prescribe any hormones but they wrote to my gp saying that we've seen this patient of yours and you know it's a standard treatment for this so the gp prescribed uh, a hormone blocker which blocked the production of testosterone in my testes and uh, synthetic estrogen. And over a period of about three weeks, my hormones went from uh, in the normal male range. Well, actually, actually, I was, I'm, I'm still quite proud of this. My testosterone was measured at 35 and the normal male range is 10 to 25. So there was nothing wrong with my <laughs> hormones. So I went from above the normal male range to within the female range in a period of three weeks while life went on. Mm. A lot of people in the conversation talk about the medical transition i also think from talking to trans people i now know through the podcast like yourself that the social transition is equally as hard or at least to some degree as hard if someone dresses in a way which is very hard to tell from the lay person what sex or gender they are and people misgender them and then that person gets offended where do you draw the line there as a transsexual person yourself? Is it up to the non-trans person to go that extra mile or is it on the trans person to eliminate that uncertainty? Because as I spoke to Aaron Kimberly about, majority of trans people want to do is be invisible, get on with their lives and fit in. Fitting in is important. We need, we need to do this. We're individuals, but we also exist in society. And to try and expect other people to change their way of thinking, it's not a great solution. And I see some trans people relying on the way other people perceive them. Well, their mental health seemingly relying on this. And not only how what other people say, but other people think. And for me, this misgendering has become a, it's become a hate mm. crime, quite literally. And people are terrified. People are, people will dance on eggshells around the trans. You, you don't need to dance on eggshells around me. <laughs> I know already uh, that, Debbie. We've spoken I, a lot. <laughs> I, uh, I, I look at misgendering, and I think you've got to, you've got, you've got to look at what's going on behind there. And there's different types of misgendering. There's what could be argued as misgendering in my family, whereas in my close family, I'm he and him because I always have been. And why do my children? I'm still my children's dad. And why, when I'm in one-to-one -one conversation with my children, should they start calling me she? They still think of me as he. So that's, that's misgendering, but that's not a problem. Mm. There's when people make, make errors. I am six foot tall, so people do read me as male. 
And also my voice, you know, you hear, you know, my voice broke as a teenage boy. You can never really recover Mm. that. People take me for mail on the phone, but I've given up worrying about that. If I ring up and say, and and I'm trying to deal with a customer services department, they start calling me sir. Well, it's just easy to go along with it. (laughs) And in some ways, if I really do then drop my voice, they sometimes listen to me a lot more. So... uh, But why does that bother? What's an issue? There's two issues. There's two things which happen. There's what I call political misgendering, when people know exactly who I am and what I'm trying to do in life. But what they see is they see a male person or they're going to use uh, male pronouns for a male person. That's political misgendering. And I, I don't have a problem with that. If people want to use pronouns based on sex, that's absolutely fine. What that doesn't imply is they may not think that people can change sex. And I don't think that either. But that doesn't imply they think any less of me as a human being. Mm. So I, I, that doesn't bother me. The one that does is uh, the abusive misgendering. Yes, of course, the malicious, when, the malicious uh, part. Yeah, th- yeah. That malicious, malicious misgendering, there is very little of that. And in the eight years since, nine years since I transitioned, I've suffered very, very little of that. Two or three instances. And it usually involves groups of young yep. men. And it usually involves alcohol. Yep. And those are the two things which then go, so it's bravado and it's alcohol. And me being me, being a teacher, would like to explore why do you go misgendering, yelling out at a complete stranger? Are any of you uh, struggling with your internal gender mm, identity? That's but the question, generally, isn't it? <laughs> generally, generally, you know, what are you trying to project? But generally, experience has taught me that when people are abusive and in that way in public, the best thing to do is not to uh, is not to fight or stand your ground. The best the best solution is to get well out mm, of there, which is what I do. Exactly. So we talk about misgendering, but what's actually going on? But The problem is, and we're coming back to what I said about this idea that the standard narrative is that we're born in the wrong body, so I'm really a woman, so I've got this female gender identity in the male body, is the misgendering is an attack on that. It says, basically, it says, we don't believe you. And that's where people really struggle with it. But I don't believe that. I don't believe I'm a woman trapped in a man's body at all. It doesn't have any power over me at all. And as I say, apart from being concerned about my safety in certain situations, it's not an issue. Use whatever pronouns you like about me, Freddie. I really do. <laughs> that's, not that's appreciated, Debbie. Before we talk about a concept called autogynophilia, I want to just briefly talk about the gender reassignment surgery you had in February 2016. So, can you tell me a little bit about that? Did it cure your gender dysphoria? And also, do you regret transitioning in any way? I don't regret transitioning. But I regret being in the position where I felt I had no choice but to transition, which is where I was. And those are two different. I can explore through that. Transitioning may be the person I am. And if I hadn't transitioned, I wouldn't be me today. I quite like myself. Mm. You know, I quite like who I am. And transitioning has helped me understand myself. If I hadn't transitioned, I would still be the same person struggling with those issues. And I might still be struggling with them now. So transitioning didn't solve the problem, but it opened the door to actually uh, solving the problem four or five years later when I finally did get there. And gender reassignment surgery, which came in 2016, so it was three years after I transitioned, actually opened the door to that. I was always contrary and I was always different. And if people expected me as a trans person to wear dresses and to wear skirts, then I wasn't going to. And felt I had a right to, if I wanted to present as a man, I should be able to. And just to put this into context, you know, if I'm walking home at night 
and it's dark and it's late and I've got my big coat on, I'll still put my hood, I'll tie my hair back, I'll put the, I'll put the hood out and I'll put my shoulders out. And I'm not a lone woman at night walking home worrying about who's behind me. I can be that man and I can still be that man. But there's always that worry that when you're exploring all the aspects of who you are, that the GP will say, you're not making enough of an effort here, Debbie. Let's cut the hormones. Let's cut this. That was something I couldn't cope with mm. at the time. But by gender reassignment surgery is a one-way street. You can't go back from that. The moment you wake up in that recovery room, you think this is done and this this is for keeps. And at that point, I felt from that point on, I, I felt I was free to reclaim my male identity. I am male to reclaim that side of me, to be the man I always was, and nobody could take my body away from me. So it gave me the freedom to do, it was liberating in that way. It gave me freedom. Mm. It was probably the first step, actually, into the freedom to actually then start really exploring what was actually going on inside. Mm. There's a very big taboo in the science around transsexual people, Debbie, which is the term autogynophilia. Now, doing my research, I found out this was a term coined by the American-Canadian sexologist Ray Blanchard in 1989. So can you explain what it is for the listeners, why you say you fit into its description, and why is it so taboo? It's taboo because it's linked to male sexuality, and that's something which we're very reluctant to talk about. Groups of men talking about sexuality. We're quite happy talking about the female <laughs> sex. We'll objectify the female sex. We'll joke. We'll dance around the issue. But actually talking about our sexuality is something yeah. that we don't... We'd do. rather, mock our, we'd rather mock our own sexual performance than talk about our own sexuality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And autogynophilia is male sexuality. Now, male sexuality is is one of the most powerful drivers that we, we experience as men. I'm in an unusual situation in that in midlife, because what we've talked about, that, the hormones being reduced, my uh, male sexuality is, uh, has been reduced to it would it was before puberty. You know, my testosterone is now in the same level as it was when I was about 10 years old. So I've been there and I've come out the other side and I look back at it. And looking back as, you know, 30 years on testosterone in their in their mid thirties, it it's, drives you. It's it controls powerful, one of the you. most powerful drugs and, in the world, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it controls you. Anyhow, what happens? That is directed. Ninety eight percent of us thereabouts are heterosexual. That's a fact. <laughs> Some people are, you know, attracted to our own sex, but most of us are heterosexual. That's about who we're attracted to. With autogynophilia, that heterosexuality, the focus is on our own bodies. So it's it's internal. Heterosexual men can be attracted to all parts of the female body. And if you talk to different men, though, again, it's teasing this out, some will be attracted to different parts of women. This, this is normal. But with autogynophilia, we're attracted to our own bodies. The locus of our sexual focus is our own bodies, which is a problem because we're heterosexual, but those bodies are male. So we're there... We're female attracted, but this body that we're attracted to is male. And this is a circle that can't be squared. The standard pathway on this is fantasy life, imagining in yourself to be the woman. So that works to an extent. Transvestism fits into this, you know, something which is 
has always been ridiculed. Transvestism fits into this. You will put a veneer over your body. It then builds the illusion. But even that's not good enough because you know it's it's a male body there. And the end point is thinking this male body then, the male body which I'm attracted to, you have to actually change those sex characteristics in order for me to be more comfortable with it. Mm. That's what's going on to gynephilia. And it's why it leads to transition. So I'm then attracted to a body which I'm attracted to, if you see what I mean. Mm. Now, that's one aspect of me, you know, that as men are attracted to uh, different women, different ways, I am also attracted to other women. I am very much attracted to my to my wife. You know, it's not just a self-focus, but it's huge as this. I think Blanchard's talked about those two competing drivers. It's the external sexual attraction uh, a sexual orientation, and it competes with that one that's directed back inwards. You can see that in life. Mm. But uh, the reason it leads to so many problems, first of all, it's the shame of talking about male sexuality. That emasculation and but, stuff as well, yeah, I imagine would come into it. Yeah. yeah, but what then comes into it is, with this, what the usual pattern is, is that as men, we're attracted to women, and that sexual focus is from side. As a physicist, I talk about electrical circuits. Our sexuality is the is the cell. It's the power supply. It's the, it's the uh, driver, and the female counterpart in that is the load in the circuit. Mm. I use the word resistance in my teaching, <laughs> and we all know what that means: electrical circuits. But there's a resistance there. Men have ideas in how they would like to uh, play out their ideas of you know sexual encounters. And then women will say, well, I'm not doing that. Mm. There's a balance there between the male and the female. And that power play going between the male sexual drive and then the female in there, you know, that that power play. Well, in autogynophilia, there is no external load at all. You are the source of your attraction. So it's like short-circuiting a cell. So you take that male sexuality and you short-circuit it. And that's why we run into so many problems. So the outworkings of that... Uh, that that of autogynophilia is it's in magnitude is enormous we see uh, autogynophilic males being a parody of what they would like women to be mm. so when they're being the woman they're attracted to they're being the woman which uh, other men might be attracted right. to i've said that it's actually a window into male sexuality <laughs> And perhaps we should be talking to men about, you know, be honest. What is your view of women? You know, like the really, feminine ideal when you, when, and like that sort of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's your, what's your ideal yeah. women? How would you like your women to dress and present themselves to you and then look at some autogynophilic males? Look at, you know, and then you'll see it all exhibited. And as I say, autogynophilia, you know, it's a window into male sexuality. Mm. But it's one that we don't talk mm, about. So many questions I could ask, but we, we're going to move on to, <laughs> before we kind of reflect on your journey, Debbie, going back to teaching a little bit, if we can. So while you were having that intense mental health crisis, you made the decision to transition. You were still working as a teacher. You still are now. Can you tell me about that apprehension you had, you know, maybe going through the gates for the first time as Debbie or when you were presenting as Debbie, but maybe you hadn't changed your name yet? Thankfully, your transition is protected under the Equality Act of 2010, which made sacking someone for their sexuality and gender, amongst other things, illegal. So tell me about that and, and how big a moment was it for you too? It was huge and it was all best. It was emotion and hormonal. You know, 
again, there was euphoria there. This was something which I've fantasized. Being that woman on the outside that I believed I was on the inside, being able to actually do that was huge and be that person and actually do the things which I'd always secretly wanted to do, but never been able to dare tell anybody. It was so shameful. And, you know, I can remember it now walking down the corridor thinking, I've only gone and done it. That was, that was, you know, I've, I've only gone and done it. But this was all going on inside my head. Before I transitioned, when I was looking into it, uh, the best piece of advice I got was the hardest place to transition is inside your own head. That's the hardest place. We think it's out there in the world. We think the hardest place to transition is sat on the late night bus home. And it isn't. The other people sat on the late night bus home, they couldn't care about you. They've got their own problems to deal about. They, they really couldn't care. It's not in school. It's not in, in school as such. We're just interested in, in can you do your job? I'll come back to the Equality Act on that later. So really, the pupils I taught, their parents and my colleagues, they were interested in, can you teach physics? And transition didn't change that at all. That was what got me through that. So out there, there was very little. It's when you get closer to home, it's in the family, transition there mm. did matter. You know, our sex role within the family really matters in a way that it doesn't necessarily in school. But the biggest place is inside our own head, how we view ourselves and how we think other people are viewing us. And to try and bring those together was, it was euphoric. Mm. But what it's interesting what you say about the Equality Act. That was really important. I don't think this country is, well, for years before that, has been a transphobic cesspit as we sometimes get painted. You know, there's been pieces in the New York Times and pieces in CNN last week viewing the UK as some transphobic pit where trans people are frightened to go out. Well, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I, I go about my life. And I don't think it has been, but people were always worried about what other people would think. And a friend of mine in teaching who transitioned three years before I did was told the ultimatum was there, if you transition you will not come back onto this school, we'll suspend you from your role and terminate your contract. And the contract was terminated. And it's not that people necessarily have a problem. It's always the other folk. Those other folk might have a problem and they might have a problem with me, with me then facilitating you doing this transition. So it's that fear what was going on. And what the Equality Act did, what the Equality Act said was, you must not treat people less favorably for going through gender reassignment. And part of that is dismissing people from their job. So I don't think that my employer would have dismissed me beforehand, but they may have come under pressure. Mm. What the Equality Act did was anybody who comes under pressure said, we don't think this is a good idea, you letting him yeah, you know, yeah. do this. They could wave a piece of paper and says, the law says we've got to do it. Exactly. And I don't think it would ever come to that, but it's the confidence in that you've got the backing. Exactly. You've got the backing of the law if you need it. And that's what the Equality Act did. That's why I felt confident in transitioning and my employer felt confident. And life went on and I carried on teaching physics and everybody Mm. was happy, you know, in that with me, with my teaching. And in in terms of the teaching and learning, life just carried Mm. on. Before we reflect, the school environment when I grew up, Debbie, was well, in my school, especially kind of a lot of toxic masculinity, a lot of homophobia. My school was very Islamophobic as well. And kids, I learned through kind of healing and trauma recovery from being bullied that kids can sniff blood 
or they can sniff a victim like a shark, basically. And with teachers, any weakness in a teacher in my in my you know rough state comp was just pounced upon, and they got absolutely annihilated. So for you transitioning, how did these kids react? Were you really proud of them that they had such an open and sort of liberal minded that they didn't really care? Yeah, this was the beginning of two thousand thirteen. Things are very different to when I was growing up in the 1980s. Very, very different. I'm proud of, you know, the advances we've made as a society. We, by 2013, we were liberal and accepting. Children were openly saying that I think I, I'm gay and that was that's accepted. Now, oh, good grief. Growing up where I grew up in the 1980s, <laughs> the term gay went with abuse and Nobody would admit to that. But this was by 2013. Things thing, things were very different. Children were accepting of this. I think they were curious. No, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, must have got a few unfiltered questions. To... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah they, 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 they will ask questions that other people uh, won't ask. I think they were a little bit disappointed because they were sent home with a letter just before Christmas. And I don't think they'd really understood what this involved, what they were expecting when they came back. I'm not really sure, but it was basically the same person <laughs> teaching the same stuff at the same time of the year in the same way. And as I said to them, and you've still got to do your homework. Yeah. Uh, they're expecting you know, stars so, in their eyes and some, some yeah, big... Yeah, I remember. But, yeah, but they were cautious to begin with. And I do remember walking down the corridor on that first day and the corridors went silent as I walked down. Now, that's, that's oh. not my usual experience in schools. My usual experience in schools down the corridors is somewhat of a negotiation. <laughs> People do not stand on ceremony when I walk through. I wouldn't want it, mm. you know. Uh, in a school, I'm in local parentis. I'm their teacher. I do not want them to stand on ceremony for me. Well, I do want them to uh, listen when I've got something to say to them. But I walked down the corridor and it just fell silent. It was like turning off the sound as you went down the corridor. Anyway... It lasted two days. I remember walking down that corridor two days later and life had got back to normal. So life had got back to normal. I was walking down the corridor in exactly the same way, navigating the crowds, saying, can you let me pass, please? I've got places to go and you've got places to go as well. Yes, yes, Dr. Hayton. And life just carried on. They took it in their stride. Let's reflect on your journey now, Debbie. So first off, how much of David still lives inside you, do you think? I am still David. He is me. We are human beings. We stick labels on them. Our sex is real, but names, pronouns, they're labels that we stick onto that. And whether I'm called David or Debbie, I'm the same person. And that was actually, it, there was some trauma in that. I was expected to change my name to show that I was, uh, I was going through a process. And my middle name is Ashley. So I was David Ashley Hayton. I did consider, because Ashley can be uh, be used for males yep. or females. So I did consider just becoming a silent David and just being Ashley mm, Hayton. Mm. I did think about doing that. But I just thought this could make life a little bit more complicated. Yeah. More ambiguity could so be did, there. Yeah. So I, d I did change the name from David Ashley Hayton to Deborah Ashley Hayton. So I kept, I kept the middle name. I saw, no, I saw no need to change mm. that. And I kept the first initial. So in teaching, we're often known by our initials. So I was DH before and I was DH since. And it's interesting. When I look through records from years ago, I've been on a program in school of digitizing old notes and old old work and i found things from 20 years ago and it's d-a-h 
And of course, it stood for mm. David Ashley Hitton. Now DH is Debbie Ashley Hitton. But it's the same person. And in terms of those initials, I am the same person. Mm. When I changed my name, I've got a standard statutory mm. declaration. And I remember standing before the magistrate saying that I do solemnly and sincerely declare that I absolutely renounce, relinquish and abandon the use of my former name. And I and I had my fingers crossed behind my back when I said that. <laughs> and again, it's me. I don't like... I don't like being told what to do by anybody. You said in the past that your views on mental health were in a different place to where they are now and you've evolved them over time. Has that been shaped by your transition, would you say? And what has that growth been like? Yeah, looking back, I'm almost ashamed of how I trivialise mental health. I was too polite to say things like snap out of it and pull yourself together. I was too polite to say those things, but I thought those things. Mm people who uh, were struggling to get out of bed in the morning and face the harsh realities of life. I didn't understand where they were coming from. And my view was just pull yourself together and get on with it. You know, what, what's going on here? And that's what I thought. Going through that crisis in 2011, 2012 myself, I realized that this is real and you can't. You can't do it. You can't help yourself and you know you've got a problem. And that taught me about the, it was the parallels between mental health and physical health. If I broke both legs, I couldn't walk down the street. I would know how to walk down the street. I would know that I was able to walk down the street. I I would hope that I could walk down the street in the future. But there was a real thing holding me back here. And when it came to what I went through, I realized it was exactly the same about my mental health. I knew that I couldn't cope with what was being thrown at me. And I was running zigzagging across the street. And I knew life hadn't always been like that. I hoped it wouldn't be like that again. But I could no more stop doing that and help myself than I could run down the street if I'd broken both legs. And that, that had to be experienced. I had to experience that in order to understand it in others. And since then... I do understand it. And, you know, if people say I feel too anxious to cope with the situation, then I would never even think, oh, just snap your fingers because I know what it's like because I've been Mm. there. And as a final question before we move on, if you could go back and talk to that David who was running in the road, closing his eyes, frightened and in distress, or the Debbie who had just transitioned, what would you say to them knowing what you do now? I guess, hang on in there, it will pass. When our mental health is good, you can look back and you see the ups and the downs and the ups and the downs. You can see we go through cycles in life. We know that it will get better. But when you're in those negative phases, it's very difficult to uh, appreciate that. And, And when things were really bad, there were no magic words. There was no easy route out of it. There was no shortcut out of it. I needed to work through it. But just simply be told to hang on there, this will get better, is probably the only thing which I would have listened to at the time. Somebody coming in and saying, you don't need to do this. I did. Somebody who said that, you know, snap out of it. There was no way I could do this. But just saying, look, this will get better. Hold tight here. It won't be like this. That's what I needed to hear at the time. And that's what I'd go back and tell myself. We've talked about your own journey, Debbie. I now want to talk about the work you do as a commentator and advocate as a trans person, especially one who doesn't conform to the views which 
I guess people might presume you think or assume you think. So first off, how did this journey begin? This is my second transition journey. I guess. <laughs> it started with two videos which I watched in the summer of 2016. One by a philosopher called Rebecca Riley Cooper, who gave a talk. It's still online. It's still on YouTube. It was a, a talk she gave to a group of skeptics in Coventry one evening, and she took apart this concept of gender identity, this idea that's been uh, invented, really, to try and explain away uh, what's actually going on when people transition. She demolished it, you know, the idea that gender identity exists. And then there was another video by a feminist campaigner called Magdalene Burns, who sadly has since died, Mm -hmm. who took apart one of the people working with Stormwall UK, basically just pulling apart the nonsense of what was being spoken here, that the first film, people didn't have a gender identity, and the second film showed the problems where people were claiming the gender identity, male people, in order to impose themselves on women. And I watched both those films, and I thought, either I need to abandon intellectual honesty, or I need to change my way of thinking. And intellectual honesty is too important for me to abandon. So I changed my way of thinking. The issue which made you really sit up and take notice was the issue of self-ID. Now, for the listeners who aren't aware of this, I want to call it policy debate, but I guess it really extends into so many other areas of life. Can you tell the listeners about it and what, let's say, the stakes are at play here? This is enormous. And this was happening in 2016 as well. The uh, House of Commons Women's and Equalities Committee, which is a cross-party committee in the House of Commons, had consulted on changes to the law and had produced a report on changes to the law. They made two key recommendations. One was to change the protected characteristic from gender reassignment, which is something we've talked about, that's something we do, to gender identity, which uh, is something we uh, claim to be. I thought that was uh, a bad idea. A, I don't think gender identity exists. And secondly, I didn't want my rights depending on something which I thought was no more than feelings. But the other thing was this concept of self-ID. It's had a number of different names, self-declaration, self-identification. But essentially what it says is that when we divide society between men and women and we've got legal protections in to uh, protect those two groups, that anybody can choose which sex to identify with and which sex to be treated as under the law. So if a man decides that for whatever reason he wants to be treated by the law as a woman, he can sign a a statutory declaration and the law has to treat him as that. And there's no questions over motives or the reasoning behind this at all. It is simply based on that assertion of this is what I want. It's become law in countries around the world. We're told that there's never any problems, but there are problems. And there are problems because women feel less able to uh, defend their own boundaries. And even if men have not actually gone through the legal process, women don't know that. And women are less likely to protect their own uh, spaces, their own associations and their own places from an intruder if they worry that uh, the man may just turn around and say, I'm a woman and you've got to treat me as a woman. And that, for women, is it's devastating. Now, 
you know, I've since worked with feminist campaigners and I totally appreciate where they're coming mm. from. But at the time in 2016, and I'll be honest, you know, my campaigning was primarily, it was a campaign for transsexual rights. It still is in some ways. I, I was aware in 2016 that there are all sorts of informal workarounds and going on. I've never gone through the uh, GRA process to change my uh, birth certificate. It still says male. It's a historical record. Now, I wouldn't want to change it. Uh, so, you know, legally, I'm still a man. But there was social contracts, really, between women and trans, you know, we call male transsexuals trans women, that uh, we were included. And I took it for granted to be included. But I was well aware that underpinning that inclusion was an assumption that there'd been some gatekeeping process going on, that uh, I'd been through a process. And I had mm. been. I'd been, through, uh, you know, I'd been through a gender clinic. I'd gone through a process of social transitioning. I'd changed my hormones. I'd changed, you know, all my sex characteristics have changed on the outside at least. So I'd been through that process, but there was an assumption that the process mattered. And I worried in 2016 that take away that process and you take away the uh, basis on which the rights which you've been enjoying were actually existing. And I worried that if you bring in self-ID, then women will decide, well, we can't trust the law to apply any gatekeeping here, so we'll have to do it ourselves. And I wrote in 2016 that Basically, women's groups, if they can't trust the uh, if they can't trust the gatekeeper of the state, they will institute gatekeeping of their of their yeah, own. And march to the gates. Which be, yeah, yeah, which will be a lot less conducive to trans people than what we've seen before. So I thought it was I thought it was a shot in. I thought we were shooting ourselves in the foot, scoring on goals, and I opened my mouth on it and I said what I thought, and immediately. There was a backlash. I was standing up saying, this self-ID, this is not good for trans people. We've got it sorted here. We've got a protected characteristic. We can't be treated less favourably in employment, housing, provision of goods and services. If you want to change your birth certificate, you can change your birth certificate. We can change the marker on our passports. Our passports mm. can say, say F. what more do we want? Mm. You know, what more do we want? And it just seemed to me to an egregious overreach that would end up you know, producing negative consequences. And you'd be blamed for it. Uh, and feel, people like you would be blamed for it as well, even though it was Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like a prophet because five years on, you know, I read through that. And, and it was a piece I wrote on my blog five years ago. I've quoted it once or twice recently. I said, this is what I said five yeah. years ago. You know, that this is not a good idea. And acceptance is going down, I think I read. I think Blair yes. White said that. I think, I'm not sure if it's, it's the same in America as in the UK, but I think she said LGBT, I don't normally like grouping things together, but she said LGBT acceptance is now going down for the first time since like the 90s or something like that. Is that right? Yes, because it's based not on things that we do, but things that we claim to be. And people can't trust that. You know, rights should be rights, should be based on action. The law gives us rights to do things. You know, it gives, it gives me the right to uh, walk down the street. It also prevents me from doing other things, but it's all about actions. Mm. The law should never be uh, protecting my right to be something. Mm. It's, it's a nonsense. Mm. And that's where we've tried to go. So people are looking at this thinking... Wow, to be actually talking about laws that give a man a right to be treated as a woman, walk into women's spaces without being challenged, or if they're challenged, they wave a piece of paper and say, look, it says here that you've got to treat me this way, to uh, go on all women shortlists in politics 
You know, it's that's appalling. You know, representation in politics. I have no business going anywhere near a, an all women list because I grew up. I was socialized as a male and I have all those advantages as a male. I've still got my male elbows to uh, promote myself. And I just think it's wrong. Female sports, it just beggars belief. And people see this and people think this is what it's all about. But it's never been like this. You know, the rights that we need as trans people is the rights not to be uh, treated less favorably as we uh, go about our lives. But that's been forgotten. Mm. One thing I've noticed, Debbie, doing my research on this topic is that because of the toxicity of the conversations, a lot of your interviews revolve largely around your transition. And I'll hopefully I like to think as an interview, I've tried to make this a holistic podcast and not just about your transition, but about your teaching and other parts of your life. Because that first and foremost, you are Debbie, you are a teacher, you are a writer, you are a parent. And this is something that fellow transsexual Buck Angel has talked about, where he's not talking about his adult film career and other parts of his life. He's just talking about trans does that annoy you well publicly in the media you just see one aspect of me i published a piece yesterday and i do read the comments <laughs> sometimes i even respond don't do to that debbie speak. don't do and that then, and then the comments, no i do i do read them it's it's important feedback is important and one of the comments one of the comments said you need to get a life debbie a words this effect you need to get a life there's more to life than this transgender nonsense but what you see is just one aspect of it i go into work and it's not something that's discussed at work. We'll discuss education yeah, policy. We'll discuss yeah. about, you know, about funding issues. We'll discuss about how to revamp the curriculum. We'll, we'll complain about the Secretary of State. <laughs> we will complain about whatever the, gov- you know, whether the government's, uh, whatever the government's planning for us and creating workload. We'll complain about that. Me being trans, it's not interesting at work. It's not, it's not part of life. It's not there. your, it's not your politics, home, is it? It's, it's, it's no. what you are. It's not politics. But it's now become yeah, sort of and, that. Yeah, and my politics is wider than this. You know, I'm a member of the Labour Party. I campaign for the things that the Labour Party have campaigned for for generations. Jobs, health, education, public services, fair distribution of scarce resources. That's what I'm interested in. I'm a trade unionist fighting for the rights of my colleagues. This trans stuff, it's a distraction. Mm. And it's a, it's a frustrating distraction because... When we discuss it, we're not getting anywhere and we're not, we're not making progress in society. In that way, it's not a progressive discussion. Mm. A few years ago, Debbie, you wore a T-shirt which said, trans women are men, get over it. It caused a lot of controversy at the time. And people on the other side of this debate would say that that T-shirt was hurtful, it was transphobic, it was harmful, it was disrespectful to trans women, it was delegitimizing them. And now what we're seeing is trans people who hold views like yourselves, like Buck Angel, like yourself, there's a few others I could probably think of, but I won't name them on here, are getting called transphobic by other trans people. So what message did you want to send with that T-shirt? And how would you respond to that criticism? Yes, that T-shirt caused an almighty fuss. And people found it hurtful. People found it challenged, challenged themselves as individuals. That's not what it was designed for. Whether you would argue that trans women are men, as I did, or trans women are women, as Stonewall do, are two equally valid competing claims and the claims we need to debate. What my T-shirt did was repeat the second part of Stonewall's, uh, Stonewall's statement, get over it, because that is what we're missing here. 
When Stonewall say trans women are women, get over it. The message is to everybody else. The rest of society needs to get over it. My message was to ourselves as trans people, trans women are men, get over it. Because I think if we get over that, then we are free to be ourselves. We're no longer uh, subject to other people's what other people say about us or other people think about us. To say trans women are men... And if we can get over that, then we are free. We can be free to be ourselves, to present ourselves as we wish, live our lives as we wish, but not be subject to other people's thoughts. Not be thinking, that person out there might be thinking I'm a man. Because that's no way to live, Freddie. And that's how people are living. The T-shirt was a challenge, Mm. not being derogatory or negative about people. There's a wider discussion here, Debbie, which we've discussed a little bit already about gender identity. And there's a term called gender ideology, which is uh, prevalent in this part of the conversation, I would say. Can you explain to listeners who don't know what that is and why is it causing, I'm pretty sure, an out and out war within the LGBT community that people don't really see? Yeah, gender ideology, or I prefer to call it gender identity ideology, because it then really does focus on what's going on here. Gender is such a a fuzzy term, whereas gender identity, I don't think it exists, but at least we know what we're dealing with. And what gender identity ideology does is it says that the way of dividing men from women is by gender identity and not by biological sex. It makes the concept of sex actually unspeakable almost to say that, well, I think sex is important. You then get told that you're a biological essentialist, I think. I, I think, think that's the, the term, yeah. I've been, uh, I've been accused of. And then I say, well, you know, isn't biology essential? But, <laughs> you know, but this is where we're going. So it's that way in which we divide humanity. Is it by sex or is it by gender identity? And gender identity ideology is the system of beliefs around that to say that we're in a post-science, post-truth, post-facts, post-sex society. That's what it says. Now, if it was true, then it wouldn't be too bad. But it's worse because it's not true. It's denial of reality. And although we may claim that uh, men and women are divided by gender identity... Women face misogyny and oppression on the basis of their sex. And we know that. And what gender identity ideology does, among other things, it makes that misogyny, that oppression, unspeakable. And it takes away the language that women need in order to actually name the oppression. It is deeply harmful, deeply negative and problematic. And I speak out against it, you know, for for what I'm saying here. I could go Mm. on. One gender identity Debbie is non-binary and I am aware of it now I have done a lot of research into it and there's a lot of other gender identities so for example a lot of teenagers are now saying they are a gender or they're saying they're asexual or they're saying they're gender fluid there's a lot of different terms that are being floated about what is your perspective on it so are you accepting of this or do you think on the other scale we just maybe pathologizing gender nonconformity? Whether we're pathologizing it or we're labeling it and boxing it is a debate which we can have. But certainly what we're taking is the vast variety of human personality, human psychology, and what we're saying to people is 
that you must decide on a gender identity and then you must uh, conform to that gender identity. I think it's deeply, deeply regressive. When I grew up, people experimented with gender. Mm. Boy George in the 1980s, before him, there was... uh, David Bowie wore dresses. Grace Jones, uh, one of the most the biggest Grace icons Jones. in the world, and but also yeah. dated some of the most beautiful looking men. And I can say that because I'm comfortable with sexuality in the world. And she was androgynous and had a lot of, I guess what you what some would call kind of stereotypically male features, but also embraced this massive femininity as well. Yeah, yeah. and there seemed to be then to be a freedom. Although not that I, I I was rather more orthodox <laughs> and repressed in my own views, but there was a freedom where people could be their sex and be themselves. And what we're doing with the uh, whether it be the seventy three gender identities of Facebook or over a hundred, as the BBC once told uh, children, what we're saying is your personality is not enough. You need to then conform to an identity off this list. Choose one from the list and we'll give, we'll give you a flag to note it. I think it's unhelpful and it's restrictive. And it also, again, denies the truth and it denies the truth of what's going on. We claim there is this identity of this non-binary. Well, sometimes I come back with a chance and say, well, aren't we all non-binary? <laughs> When you, you think know, about it like that, binary? it's not a bad point. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, you know, can you point out anybody who is totally binary? And we joke about it, but you know, mermaids, the uh, trans charity, had a training session where they used that scale of GI Joe to Barbie, and we're using that in all seriousness. So, aren't we all non-binary? But I always come back to saying, well. Presumably, and using my choosing my language carefully, male people can be non-binary and female people can be non-binary. You know, I'm thinking of Sam Smith, and you know, is one. There's female non-binary people like Jack Monroe, and Demi Lovato, but that's but, a whole different conversation, yeah. I think. Now, <laughs> but when you look at Sam Smith, well, look, at the, I don't, I don't, want to, I don't, I don't look at individuals because it's not about individuals. But when you look at male non-binary people and female non-binary people, they are not the same. And they're not treated as the same, and society doesn't treat them as the same. They look at the male non-binary people and say, these are men who have got different colour hair and want to stand out as special, and female non-binary people are treated by the society in the same way as women. And to try and create a group of people for whom sex does not matter, we're fooling ourselves. We're the products of our evolution. Sex has been around for 1.2 billion years. Sex produced us and sex will produce the next generation. If we ignore that, we're just being naive and foolish. And you can't think away sex. It's always going to be there. As a teacher then, Debbie, social media is something that you really wanted to talk about as well when we we discussed everything off air. So how has social media and smartphones played into this? Has it accelerated it? Has it created it? And what do you think is the solution if it is a problem? It's a problem I don't have any solutions for because when I talked about sex being important, it's important because we are our bodies. You know, for the whole of human history, we have been mind and body together, walking around the planet, impossible to detach. People have tried to detach them. There's been, uh, you know, philosophers going back to ancient Greece saying, are we really separate spirit? You know, and our bodies are mere perambulating devices. So those philosophies going, but you've never been able to do it for real. What we've done with social media, we've been able to detach ourselves as hum- humanity from our bodies because the moment we go into cyberspace, we're not attached to our bodies. So that 
takes us away from that. And first of all, it was computers. So you had to sit down at the uh, at the mm-hmm. laptop. Uh, so you had to sit down at the desktop yeah. computer to go into that area. Then you carry the uh, smartphone or you carry the laptop around the house. And now you carry the smartphone around everywhere with mm. you. And it allows a, an out-of-body experience in this way, which children especially have grown up with. Mm. And they've grown up with that separate existence, which is separate from their bodies. The harsh reality of life, though, is that we are our bodies. And when it comes to that physical interaction with other people, sex still matters. When it comes to, you know, our fundamental fundamental drivers within a sex matters. When it comes to reproduction, sex matters. And we can't get away from that. And children have been told that we can do. And they've been lied to, frankly, Freddie. I worry about the smartphone especially because it means that it's, it, it, it walks around with children. The smartphone, you, you can look at its evolution. You know, you look at it's about 2011, 2012, mm. 2013. It came in very quickly. It was a quantum leap in the way that society worked. And at the same time as a teacher, that's when there was a huge spike and an increase in children's mental health issues. Mm. You know, we've got a problem here. How do we detach children from these? I don't know. A year ago with the lockdown, children spent two years, spent two terms sat at yeah. home. And the time when we did, did detach from those mobile phones, you know, get your mobile phone out, we'll give you a detention, got taken away for two complete terms. Mm. And children suffered this. And we're not talking about no, this at all. It is Pandora's box, isn't I, it? It really is. Yeah. yeah. How do you get the genie back in the bottle when technology yeah. is furthering and advancing at a, a swifter and swifter rate that we can really imagine? The last topic, and I'll, I'll talk about this quite briefly with you, Debbie, that I wanted to talk about is medicalization of children with gender dysphoria. And I'm, and I spoke about this with Sinead, I, I say children with gender dysphoria. Can you talk about your concerns here? What is the reality? And if, as Sinead has spoken to me about, there is a, a growing wave or tsunami at its most extreme of detransitioners which are to come, do you think that will harm trans people like yourself? Well, I just want to go back to the beginning of your beginning of your statement. There, we are doing dreadful things to children. We're making them promises that they can be whichever sex they want to be. We're telling them they can choose their puberty. We can tell them they can delay their physical development and their mental development because cognitive development comes with puberty the two the two come together we move from concrete thinking to abstract thinking through puberty so we're saying to children you can mess with these things you can change with these things buy yourself time you can be the person you want to be and they can't we are for better for worse we're stuck with the bodies that we were given and somebody who is disabled can't identify out of their disabled body somebody who is I'm short-sighted. I, I can't identify out of my short-sightedness. And I'm male. I can't self-identify out of that. But we're telling children that we can. And children are picking up on this. And it's a way to escape. And some, I fear, are, are seeing it as a way to escape the harsh realities of mm. life. A ready-made online community comes along and says, here's some rainbows and sparkles and glitter. You can be the person you want to be in our happy community. And we're telling these children lies. And I worry about what's happening. Mm. There is definitely a contagion. Children will watch other children, watch other children. And there's a contagion builds up. It wasn't there before. We're worried about uh, specifically about teenage girls. Mm. We're told that in the past, uh, girls were just repressed. So they couldn't come out. Now they can. 
And I'm thinking, well, why is there not an army of middle-aged women transitioning who were repressed in the past? Those middle-aged female friends of mine are telling us we struggled with our sex when we were growing up, but we got over it. Most women will tell uh, you that, (laughs) to be honest. yeah, Yeah, and that is what terrifies me with what's going on. We should not be medicalizing children or sterilizing children as we are in some cases any more than we should be saying you have a tattoo of children and at a time when the restrictions on on children are getting bigger and bigger and bigger i remember growing up we could buy cigarettes when we were 16 now you're 18 we could buy fireworks when we're 16 now it's 18 in the u.s at 16 you know like yeah yeah, in the u.s they put uh they put the age at which you can drink alcohol 21 21 even And at the same point, this autonomy over our bodies and our reproductive, future reproductive capacity, we're saying, yeah, you know, this, my four-year-old child has come out as this. I'm thinking, what's going on? Where did this come from? But people who speak out against it, people like Sinead, are marginalized and uh, condemned and, you know, are treated with contempt by uh, people who are go- who are doing this and we need to speak up and we need to keep speaking up. we should not we should not be doing this to children we should go back to how it was before to say to boys you should be able to present yourself if you feel more comfortable wearing the school uniform which the girls are wearing wear it but don't expect that you're going to play on the girls team girls sports team because sex matters and we should be having that honest conversation not selling a well if you if you kind it's selling a dream but it's in reality it's selling a lie mm. as a final question debbie doing this trans advocacy or have a writing journey or however you want to call it for as long as you have what has it taught you about yourself uh It's helped me understand who I was from when I was three years old. The internal struggles I now understand and I never understood them before. It's when I understand myself and I'm comfortable with myself, that's something which I'm very pleased that I've actually managed to get to where I am. And if I hadn't gone through all I have done over the last 10 years, I wouldn't be there. It doesn't make it worthwhile as such. It's caused problems. It has been a route to actually understanding myself. Debbie Hayton, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you, Freddie. It's been really good to talk to you. Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Debbie for being my special guest for this episode and for letting her check in with me. I will put Debbie's blog and social media links in the show notes if you want to find out more about her written work and the issues she discusses. I find her a really valuable educational source in this very toxic conversation. I will sign us off by saying, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family, spread the good news about Vent and the podcast. If you want to support us further, you can give us a rating and a review on apple podcast that will really help us out with those precious algorithms if you want to support us even further you can of course donate to our patreon that's at www.patreon.com slash vent help uk v-e-n-t-h-e-l-p-u-k you can also visit our gofundme if you want to make a one-off donation that is in our link tree and it's on all our channels we hope to check in with you again very soon remember guys it's always okay to vent <laughs>